0: The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracetysd.com. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him... You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him... The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted from the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for we thank you for your love, we thank you for this this morning that we're able to gather here today to worship you, Lord, and thank you for your son and his sacrifice that he made that he's an intercessor for us, that he allows us to have this intimate relationship with you, Lord, and so I pray This morning that we take all distractions away as we listen to what you have to say to us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning, Grace City. Awesome. Uh, My name's Trevor. Uh, I'm one of the leaders uh, here at the church. So today I'll be filling in for Randall while he's out of town. And we're continuing through our summer series. So we're going through the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews, there's a lot of references that are made to the Old Testament. You've probably noticed that. And um, so I think this seems to bridge an issue of misplacement. So the people that this book is being written to, on the one hand, they seem to know who Jesus is. But on the other hand, they seem to be elevating the former order of things. Right? So hold on to Jesus. Jesus is the anchor of our soul. So who needs who needs to hear that message? Who needs to know that? It's those that are holding on, but it's those that have not fully let go yet. So it's this context that sets up the message that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. And every commentator that writes about the book of Hebrews uh, will tell you that this is the working theme of the entire book. That Jesus is better. That Jesus is superior. But to what? So Jesus is our salvation the gospel is the kingly declaration that Jesus really lived, died, and rose again, resurrected. And we have the assurance of faith in him, right, a justification by faith, because of grace alone. So to, to say that Jesus is not better is to not know Jesus, So uh, the Gospels direct, are very direct, that Jesus is the one true way. He literally said that, okay? Um, And he's the one true Messiah. He conquered death. And the audience, the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, it suggests that even though they've heard the Gospel, even though they've experienced the Holy Spirit, they have not yet fully trusted the power of the gospel. So today, the subject at hand and concerns with this is about priesthood. Okay, but before we get to that, um, there's something we need to walk through first. I think the uh, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter five, is really helpful. It sets up the lens kind of sets up the foundation for this message. This is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until what? Until all is accomplished. Okay, so, my hope is that after today, we'll have a fuller um, expression and perhaps even an appreciation for what Jesus is really doing here. And it's okay to be completely honest for a minute, right? So, I know that Jesus is inexpressibly critical to this Christianity thing, okay? Um, I also know that the Old Testament's pretty important too. But I just don't know how to make sense of the whole narrative. Because how I read the New Testament, how I read the Old Testament, are different. So what Jesus is saying here is that he by no means is here, came here, to throw away, dispose, dismiss the law. But Jesus, being God, knows what the law is aiming for. He has come to bring fulfillment, completion, perfection, right? He's, he's accomplished it. And he did. The Old Testament was always pointing to Jesus, his priesthood, and his kingship. Until heaven and earth pass away, there's a lot that that means that we don't have time to talk about today. Um, all right, not an iota, not a dot, so literally like dot the I cross the T, yeah, even the most minor things, yeah, it completes all of it, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And we know that his work is accomplished. That is, of course, not to say that it has yet been fully realized, the already not yet, But there's enough here for you to know Jesus and to trust him. Salvation. So with this passage, the Matthew passage, it creates a healthy framework, a constructive means of knowing Jesus, maybe in some ways we didn't know him before. Knowing the ancient writings of the Old Testament and knowing that Jesus really is better. He really holds all things together But also know that sequence does matter. To know the greater narrative of scripture, well, you have to be reading all the scriptures. And there are going to be places, that's a little bit of work. If you're following, uh, if you've been doing really well with the CBR, you're um, somewhere between Numbers and Deuteronomy right now, probably. And uh, that might be a a little hard for your Old Testament chapter. So as Janie was reading today, there's probably a couple words that you're probably not too familiar with. And to be fair, you may not even know quite how to make sense of it. So pertaining to priest and priesthood, that of Melchizedek, And that of the Levitical priesthood, right? The Levitical priesthood, the priesthood commissioning Aaron and his sons over the many generations to be an order of priests. And Melchizedek is very different. We're going to talk about that. So I I uh, I think it's helpful to note that priest. It's probably an interpretive hurdle. So what I mean by that, it's a word we're probably not familiar with, so we're a little confused. So how do we understand the word priest? So it's not likely that a lot of us have an acquaintance to that word. And maybe some that have either Catholic or Episcopalian background, you might have an idea of a kind of priest, but that's not either priest that's being talked about here. Right, So that's not the biblical meaning for either the Levitical priest or the Melchizedekian priest. So I think it's helpful, Like, what's, what's a good analogy for priest? About the kind of priest the Bible's talking about. So priests, as you read the scriptures, are a go-between. A go-between the people, Israel, and God, Yahweh. The priests offered sacrifices to cover the sins of the people. And they also had to make sacrifices to cover their sins. Right, and in the Old Testament, you remember um, that the people of Israel would be like Yahweh, not like other nations. A priest was a mediator and a representative of God to the people but it was a really scary job and but not just anyone could do it only those from the line of Aaron Levi were they were the only ones able to be levitical priests it's where you get the word levitical priest it's where you get the book leviticus but there are even more requirements than just that you came from the line. So uh, this analogy from Tim Mackey, uh, it creates a really easy way to understand, I think, a little bit about priests and priesthood. And he says this, uh, think about cars. Does anyone here own a car? Show of hands. Cool. Or, so, probably just about everyone does, especially if you live in San Diego. Like, how are you going to get around if you don't have a car? Unless you have a lot of money and you're just always dishing it out to Uber. (laughs) Right? So, yeah, probably just about everyone owns a car or has a license. So, um, if you have a car key, think about that car key in your mind for a second. So, I know if I put my car key into the ignition and turn it, my engine should start, right? That's, that's a good sign. That's how it should work. Now what happens when there's something wrong and my car won't start? Or the check engine light comes on or even worse things happen or it makes sounds that just are bad news. So there's two options. You can either turn up the music really loud, just pretend you don't have a problem. <laughs> And then just, maybe I'll get down the road, or maybe I won't. Or, you can take your car to the priest in this analogy. And who is that? Well, it's a mechanic. I know how to do very minor care for my car, right? Check the oil, fluids, pressures. We're good with that, but that's about all we're good with, okay? So, but what happens... But when it comes to, like, the engine and the transmission and all of those words, like, way over my head. We're in some very dangerous waters. (laughs) I have no idea what to do at all. Um, I don't know if that's the same for you. So I know how my car should work. I remember when it worked well, but it doesn't right now but I needed to work well again, so I take it to a mechanic shop, right? So on my way up to UC every day, I I pass a couple of these mechanic shops. Um, So these are trained, professional, learned specialists that know how to fix cars. They are credentialed and certified, at least I hope the ones you take your car to are, so they were set apart to study how to fix cars, and what do they do? They fix cars. And Tim Mackey, uh, he even shares like their garment and uniform. Right, if you read Leviticus, you kind of see that the priest wore this specific garment. So he shares that they wore these very, very manly onesies. <laughs> And they are always there when you need to fix your car. No matter how early or how late it seems, they are always there. They are a go-between for myself and my car. When it's broken, when it's out of alignment, they can help. There's a price involved, right? Parts, labor, money, time, right? And, And so with the priests. So with this analogy, we launch into the more technical uh, part of the message. And we'll just try to power through it. And I believe there will be insight into the character and nature of Christ through this. And maybe even change the way we read the Old Testament or even the book of Hebrews. So here are the main observations from the text that we're going to use to see how Jesus offers a better way. Jesus offers a better priesthood, a better promise, and a better propitiation. And we're going to talk about that word because it's really big and it's really weird. With that said, let us jump into the, to the first point of emphasis. Priesthood. So Hebrews 7 verses 11 through 17 says this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is written, for it is a witness of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so beginning in verse 11, there's a rhetorical question. So the question implies there's a very clear and obvious answer. Why would we need another priest, a different kind of priest, if the Levitical priests of the law were completely sufficient and of themselves? for the fullness of salvation before God. So the picture is painted really clear. If this was enough, then there would not have been a need of the change in the priesthood. But we see there absolutely was a need of change. There were things that the former could do, but there were things that the former could not do. And the next verse, it can be a little tricky when you first read it, but it does make perfect sense. For when there is a change to the priesthood, there is a change to the law. What does that mean? So this is talking about if you change the priesthood in terms of whom the priest is, between the Levitical order, compared to the Melchizedekian kind of priest, then you have a change to the law, a change of interpretation and practice, because this priest and its following priesthood, they're different. It provides what the former could not, so there was weakness to the former. And at this point, we are seeing more clearly the kind of priest Jesus is, which is connected to the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. For one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one else has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So what is the writer getting at here? How does the tribe that Jesus comes from play a role in the kind of priest that he would be? This says a critical role to play. Jesus in his human lineage is from the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, if you're familiar, in um, Isaiah, the, from the line of David. So this is a declaration that Jesus is kingly but we also know that this line had nothing to do with priesthood in the history of Israel. So we're here in the middle. Jesus has a lineage belonging to the kingly order, so I can totally understand that Jesus is king. No problems there. But priest? I I don't know about that one. And here we enter this strange, enigmatic, mysterious figure whom very little is written about, and that's Melchizedek. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So some translations will use the word order of Melchizedek, but likeness, pattern, schematic, these get the point across probably a little bit better. So Jesus is like Melchizedek. So he's that kind of priest. Not that Jesus is below Melchizedek, but there's a simile or a metaphor happening here just with others in the New Testament, right? Adam, Moses, Elijah, Joshua, etc. So we read here that Melchizedek, that he was a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And then Psalm 110 is quoted. You are a priesthood forever after the order of Melchizedek. So to best know how to approach the metaphor. You you need to understand what the metaphor is. And with that said, uh, we look at who Melchizedek is. And he only comes up like three times in the Bible. You have Genesis 14, uh, Psalm 110, and in Hebrews. Definitely in chapter 7 and a little bit in 6 and 5. So we'll turn to Genesis 14 Verses 17 through 20. And this is what it says. After his return, Abram's return, from the defeat of Kedalomir, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, this is before they were destroyed, and went out to meet him at the valley of Shavveh, which, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Go figure. He was priest of God Most High, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Okay. So the basic context here is that Abram's nephew, Lot, was captured, he was held captive after the nation that Lot was residing in was overtaken by another nation and king, Ketalemir, among other kings. Abram learns that Lot was captured and and he takes a group of 318 trained men, right? As trained as as shepherds and gatherers would be. Um, But they're victorious and they bring back all the lost possessions that were lost to Lot, including himself, and his family, and then this is what happens. So Abram is victorious, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him after this huge victory and deliverance. But this person, Melchizedek, he beats him to it. Melchizedek brings bread and wine. He gives Abram a blessing from Yahweh and then Abram offers Melchizedek a tenth of everything from the battle so Melchizedek is a king and Melchizedek is a priest but who is um, who? Um, but a priest to who? to God most high the same way we're referring to Yahweh and a lot of Old Testament scriptures. So Melchizedek is a priest well before the law was given, right? Generations before the law was given. And he's a king. His lineage and descent isn't the critical piece about this person. Lineage is critical for the Levitical priests, And he doesn't have a successor like the Levitical priest did, right? So after priest would die, his son would take over for him, but not so with Melchizedek. And the blessing that Melchizedek gives, it's all about Yahweh. And Abram, how does he respond? Well, he gives him a tenth of everything of the spoils of the battle. So there's something really important here. There's something about this Melchizedek that helps us know Jesus better. And the author of Hebrews basically lays out at the beginning of chapter 7 a translation for this. It's really helpful. So that's where we're going to go. Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met "'Abraham, returning from the slaughter of kings, and blessed him. "'And to Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. "'He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. "'And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. "'He is without father or mother or genealogy, "'having neither beginning of days nor end of life, "'but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever.'" So see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes, give 10%, from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are, are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes, from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes paid through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So this is pretty much a translation, Genesis 14, but it's really, it's really good, it's really helpful. So Melchizedek in the original language, Hebrew, melech, uh, king, and Sadiq, which is a loaded term, it means righteousness or justice. So that's what his name means, okay? And he's the king of this place called Salem. And this word Salem, it it looks very it looks like another word, right? Shalom is what it comes from. So he's a he's the king of peace, which of course Shalom has more to it than just peace itself but a whole state of well-being and so this Salem where he's king of most scholars think well that's where Jerusalem ended up being okay but Melchizedek is not an Israelite there's no such thing at this point Um, so he's probably a Canaanite king so in the account, there is no record of who Melchizedek's parents are. So his priesthood, his kingship is not contingent on ancestry. And there is no record when he was born or when he died, as with a lot of people in Genesis in the Old Testament, right? They lived so many years and died. So his priesthood endures through all his life, perpetually. And the writer then goes to make a claim that is pervasive, especially for a Jewish-influenced audience. Or even if you think of the Pharisees, whom their lineage to Abraham and Levi was like the most important thing to them. The claim is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, he's greater than Levi. And even that the tithe paid was as if Levi made the tithe though not yet alive his father Abraham paid it it is beyond dispute that the lesser is blessed by the former by the greater Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and Abraham is greater than Levi and Jesus he's greater than Melchizedek so with a little bit of work you see Jesus has a claim to be a kingly priest That his priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. So D.A. Carson, um, he said this in a sermon. We have such a savior who is not only a king, but is also the priest. If he is only a king, then we live in terror. That's it. But he is also the priest. He is the perfect mediator between God and human beings. Why? Because he is God and human being. Jesus is the perfect mediator, the perfect go between, because he knows both perfectly. So, this is our our second emphasis from the text. I know we spent a ton of time on the first. Too much, probably. Uh, Jesus offers a better promise. The priesthood of Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. The will of the Father fulfilled promise. God did complete what he said he would a new covenant, right? Jesus is the guarantor of that new covenant and a new priest and the accomplishment and found fulfillment wasn't able to. The law called for a covering of sin by the offerings of animals. Jesus took care of the very heart problem of sin. And he was commissioned to this from an oath, from a promise So this is what verses 18 through 25 in Hebrews 7 says. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So there's temple, tabernacle uh, language here. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests, were such without an oath. But the one who was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This Jesus, the guarantor, source of a better covenant, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's perfection bridges the gap of the weakness in the law, right? The law made nothing perfect. So the law, maybe it's helpful to think of it this way. It's like a Band-Aid, so the critical problem is a broken bone. And you can't see it. And a band-aid's not going to do anything to fix that. Right? The law maybe help clean up the wound. May help to take up some blood or something. But it doesn't fix the issue. It doesn't change the fact that you need surgery. Right? And Jesus is the only one that can operate, of course. So our priestly king, and in this new covenant we are afforded a beauty that we take for granted we have access to god well how well through jesus the spirit dwells in those who have trusted jesus that call him their savior and lord the holy of holies dwells in a new place and because and because our priest it is accessible Verse 21 quotes Psalm 110, which we referenced a little bit earlier. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So the promise was spoken a long time ago, and we find so much faithfulness in Jesus. Jesus fulfills the promise, and the footing of this promise is sure and dependable. So let's look at the deeper context and meaning that the writer of Hebrews is alluding to in Psalm 110. It points so powerful to Christ and from David himself. And it's important to note from these different quotes and references from the Old Testament, it's alluding not just to words and text, it's alluding to a story. It's alluding to a purpose. So this is Psalm 110, a Psalm of David the Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in, a, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Lord says to my Lord. Okay, so remember that that David, he wrote this psalm. And David is one of the greatest Israelite kings. So it's clear to know whom one of these lords is, Yahweh, right? Um, But the other, who's that? Well, a lot of scholars think this is pointing directly to Jesus. He's that other lord. So Hebrews quotes verse 4, which we've read a couple times. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is what we read after this. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So this is the picture that David is painting of his Lord, this Lord. So he's like Melchizedek. He's very kingly, and he's really powerful. And he's also at the right hand of the Father, which is quoted through all out the New Testament, from the Gospels to Acts, all over the place. And on the day of his wrath, kings will be shattered. The nations will be judged. This is a triumphant king, a different kind of king, just like he's a different kind of priest. Jesus was not what the Jewish leaders desired of their Messiah. And to be fair, he's probably not always what we desire out of a Messiah, right? We'd like it to be a little bit easier. We'd like it to kind of go with our plans. And with much clarity, we see that Jesus was exactly whom he said he was. And he's exactly who the scriptures testified that he would be. So Jesus fulfilled the promise So our last observation from the text is that Jesus offers a better propitiation, right? That weird word. So propitiation is, it's not exactly a word you encounter often. Um, It's a strange word. And if you're new to the gospel and new to the Bible, it may very well be the first time you've heard it. So this concept of propitiation, it draws connection with the fact that we have all sinned, and we need a Savior, a Savior that can fully cover the cost, but he can also fix the underlying problem so that we may be deemed righteous before a holy and perfect God. And sin separates us from God, and in that separation, there is a cost that has to be made to restore us, right? And we know that God is a God of justice, a God of righteousness, as well as a God of grace, a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness. So our point here is that Jesus, the perfect high priest, he is a unique one. He is a unique high priest. Jesus doesn't provide sacrifice in the way that the Levitical priests did. What does Jesus do? Well, Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice, right? So it's a lot easier to make offering when someone provides a sacrifice, right? When they provide the cattle and whatnot. But Jesus, he's perfect. He's without sin. He offers offered himself as a sacrifice. He allowed himself to become the sacrifice that we needed. And he does so much more than provide a temporary covering until we sin again. He has completely fixed the problem and has allowed us to draw near to God. And this is what verses uh, 26 through uh, 28 says in Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the perfect propitiation. He is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, yet exalted above the heavens. So Tim Mackey, he has a a concise way of looking at the life of Jesus. It's a really small quote. So if you have notes and stuff, write this down for sure. Um, And this is what it is. Christ's execution was his exaltation. Okay? Christ's execution was his exaltation. So it's a little bit of a paradox. Jesus dying and being the perfect offering... Has exalted his name. We know that Christ conquered death, and the truth of the resurrection makes Christ the one true Messiah. So if you go in history, there were Messiahs, there are people that claimed to be the Messiah before Christ and after Christ. But what did they all do? They all died, and their movement ended. But Jesus, He resurrected. So He conquered death. So, how long does a king reign? Well, a king reigns till they die. Oh, but Jesus, he yeah, he's a king, but but he conquered death. So he reigns forever. You can trust that. He conquered death. He overcame the penalty of sin. He did not deserve it, but he bore the burden so that the chaos and death of sin would be removed. And peace and hope would give us new life for those that know him and fully trust him. Christ's execution, it also gives us an exaltation of sorts. We receive so much blessing and gracious faithfulness of which we don't deserve. But that does entail putting to death the old life and our former ways of doing things. So Donald Hagner, a biblical commentator, he said this about a portion of this text. The result is plain. Jesus had no need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins, as do the priests, over against the necessarily repetitive sacrifices of the Levitical priests, which our author represents as self-confessed inadequacy. Jesus sacrificed for their sins once and for all. This he accomplished when he offered himself. So Jesus is different from the Levitical order. He does not share this inadequacy. Jesus lived the perfect life, free of all sin. And just as John the baptizer said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the whole world. A lamb, language for offering, sacrifice. So Jesus paid that price. So those that love him are his disciples would be with him. He is restoring and making all things new. What's he not doing? Well, he's not making all new things. Right? We struggle with that. That's that's what we would do, right? Oh, it's it's broken, doesn't do what it used to do. I'm just going to throw it away and buy something new. Well, that's not how Jesus works. And DA Carson, he shares this in a sermon. Christ takes up all the roles and functions of the priest with one exception. He never sinned. That's why he is an even better high priest. So you can trust the power of the gospel. You can trust the king and high priest that you have in Jesus. The gospel declares this, at least a full gospel does, a kingly declaration and a mediation to satisfy the wrath that I incurred from my sin. I can't pay the debt that I incurred, but Jesus paid the price and he has made it possible for us to draw near to God. Jesus brought this accomplished work into beautiful completion. See, that's the kind of Messiah he is. Righteousness and peace. So as we close today, uh, I just want to leave you with one takeaway. So the takeaway, it builds off of a question. To you, Is Jesus honestly better? So I want you to really sit a while on this question, even if it's a little awkward. Maybe it's deeply considering this in prayer over this next week. Is Jesus honestly better to you? I know Jesus is better for me. I know he's done a lot for me, but is he what you choose to call better? Right, the Messiah of both righteousness and peace. Or is Jesus and this whole gospel thing just a hope that you have but you have no investment in it what I mean to say is the gosp- is this whole gospel thing what you really build your life and character upon if you have trusted Jesus as your messiah then you're a disciple right but that doesn't necessarily mean that you take that very seriously So let's quickly uh, quickly just look at a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the takeaway is this point. What is your source of obedience? In the days of Jesus' ministry, right, in the days of his flesh, that's what it's talking about, on earth, he was in prayer, constantly attuned to the will of the Father, He sought the will of the Father, the kingdom, and that all who believe in him and obey may have eternal life. New life in him. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father unto death. Jesus learned obedience in the midst of the suffering. Jesus was made perfect. In him, that is our source of eternal life. There is no other means, no other path, no other truth, no other gospel. Like there's no other way there And we obey Christ just as he obeys the Father. Christ was designated to this by God. And we arrive at the point, right? The source of obedience. There is a distinct corollary between obedience, what you do, right? What you listen and choose to do. And if you really think Jesus is better, right? Because you can know Jesus, yet like the audience this is written to, still hold on to the former way of doing things. Now, that's probably not a Judaic practice of rites and sacrifices and all that stuff, angels and kings and prophets and priests, but it may be something else. That, yeah, I know Jesus, but, but this is what I do. And this is what my real hope's in. Okay, so... And I want you to leave with a question. Is the gospel of Christ the source of obedience that you cling to more than just a hope you have after you die? Is the Christian walk of life practicing the way of Jesus, the way you see, breathe, touch, speak, and interpret everything in this world? Do you... Do you constantly pray and discern God's will in order to faithfully abide in his presence at all times? Or do we just take what God has to offer and just do whatever I want? Right, because that's a distortion, right? That's not knowing who you are and that's not knowing who God is, if that's the way you're living. Or how do you look at ambitions? What do you want to get out of life? So where's your source of obedience? And I know, you know that's not a word we like. Obedience, submission, discipline, just correction. We don't like that. And for some, that can even take you to a place where you can't even do life with people because you're like that self-oriented. And all we can think about is the present state, how I want to be perceived. Right, And that's not obedience to Christ. The source of obedience in our cultural moment, or how we translate that, is what is the truth you are living, or I'm living my truth, or something to that extent. But honestly, what is the primary truths that you orient your life around? How do you end up making choices, right? And what truths do you affirm and what truths do you reject? Are you choosing to live in direct response to the gospel? Jesus is your kingly priest? Or are you living the exact same way you did before you even knew Jesus? You just have a different insurance policy now. It's a hard question. I know that. But I think it's a necessary one. Obey the will of Of Jesus just as he obeyed the will of God. And it cost him. It was painful. Yet Jesus trusted. And maybe for some of us, like we know the truth part, we know the gospel really well, but this whole obeying thing, listening and doing stuff because of it, like it's just not happening. Okay? And then we may have people that the whole doing thing, like It's clockwork. It's on autopilot. Like, I don't even think, I just do it. And that's the problem, too, because you don't know the why. You're not reminding yourself of the gospel. That's not the motivation and the heartbeat behind it. So pray this week for your kingly priest to show you how to choose his kingdom above all other matters. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our king, that you are our high priest, that you sacrificed, you offered your life, Lord. We didn't deserve it, but you offered it for us, Lord. Um, I pray that the, that we draw into your, in your word and your presence and prayer uh, to seek your will. Maybe that's the first time we've really asked that question, or maybe it's the first time we really deeply meditated or asked the question, Lord, you know, I I think this whole thing's real and I just have a lot of questions. Lord, I I pray just within community um, in your presence that we would seek to find you and know you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at GraceCitySD.com. Gray City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.